Okay, so what I want to do this year is go through of Shalvi Yisraeli's position. I'm going to do a little bit of introduction um, to frame it, but the core of the share of Shalvi Yisraeli, I will tell you up front two things about Shalvi Yisraeli's article. One is, it's incredible. Uh, you should read it afterwards. Um, and not only is it incredible as a work of Halacha and Lamdus that uh, models what you want in uh, you know, creativity and attentive and things like that, it's also philosophically very important. Uh, it makes a claim that I think is made nowhere else in halakhic literature uh, that I'm aware of, though I'm happy to get Makaros that uh, do the same. And so in that sense, it has always been an article that excited me. Before I was interested in military ethics at all, this is an article that excited, that excited me a great deal. And, and I usually teach it in the contrast of the article that it explicitly responds to, which is uh, Rav Zevin's uh, Mishpat Shylock. Uh, Mishpat Shylock, if you haven't read it, is an article uh, in which Rav Zevin uh, purports to address the question of whether, of whether the Merchant of Venice is anti-Semitic. Uh, the way in which he addresses the question of whether the, the Merchant of Venice is anti-Semitic is by proving that it must be anti-Semitic, because anybody who knows anything about Judaism would know that Shylock could never have collected the debt, because it's usher to be choval with a person even if he is mochel. Right, the Merchant of Venice, you collect, he's collecting the pound of flesh, but that was obviously usher. And so Shakespeare obviously didn't know anything about Jews, and he's projecting this position onto, um, onto Jews. Um, because, and Rosevin becomes very famous, Rosevin holds that people don't own their bodies. Right, God owns their bodies. So this is Rosevin's, Rosevin becomes famous as the position that there is no such thing as physical autonomy for Jews. Uh, and really for human beings, God owns everything. Um, I think that most of Rosevin's article is wrong, uh, and in some cases quite dramatically so. Uh, although it's an interesting thing, which might be very popular, Rosevin taken at full blast means it's us or to turn down dessert if you enjoy it. Because one of his big proofs is that you can't cause any tsar haguf, and the raya is a nazir, right? So it's not Vladavka wine, anything that you really enjoy, but right, it's a nazir kolomer, right? And nazir brings a chatas, because right, he's, he's chote, so he's trying to desert your chote. So there are also really interesting implications of Rosevin's Zevin's claim. Uh, Israeli right, goes straight at that, develops the whole theory of human autonomy. And that's why I'm philosophically attracted to the article. Uh, on the other hand, Rosevin does all sorts of things in this article in the context of war that I'm much less attracted to. So I want to say that from, I th- the article is incredible. That's just uh, you know, an aesthetic appreciation. And then morally, it makes a point that I have enormous attraction to. Maybe you have the reverse. And it makes points that I have deep, uh, deep difficulty with. Um, that wasn't our good time. <laughs> uh, the deep difficulty, I guess, is... is um, well, I'll get, I'll get to it in a uh, teaching course. Okay, so 15 years ago, um, the Eda Journal published a, um, a symposium on, on halachic military ethics or Jewish military ethics. The three respondents were Professor Benjamin Shalom, who was one of the founders of Beit Rasha, Rabbi Michael Breut, and myself. Uh, Rabbi Breut took uh, the position, I think, there, he's taking take it in other contexts, he's not always consistent about it, that um, halacha basically suspends all ethics in the context of war, um, because in the context of war, the only thing that matters is victory. Uh, right, and some of his more uh, more out there articles, are, are, are also endorsed um, throwing people out of helicopters, throwing bound prisoners out of helicopters, and things like that if it helps you win the war, just to make the point that he thinks there are no ethics in war at all. Um, and I'm pretty consistently on the other side. Um, that's also why I was the anti-torture voice after 9/11 in American uh, in American Orthodox Judaism. Um, and my lodestone was a quote from Rav Lichtenstein's Zichron Levracha in an article in Tkumen, and that's what I begin the Makarot with. 
And a person has to know, right, very important, that a person going out to war knows that they are not leaving a world with one set of values, scale of values, ladder of values, however you want to translate, Sulam Arakim, to a world with another Sulam Arakim. So I understand, right, and somebody tried to do this in a different shir today and argue that, of course, it's the same values because when you fight, when you, right, when you fight, uh, you create a totalitarian state in order to make the world safe for democracy, you're still prioritizing democracy. I don't think that's what Rilchensky means at all. Right? I think Rilchensky means that, you know, that in the context of war, you're supposed to be fully conscious always in your actions and guided by the same values as you are in civilian life. The problem is that um, there's almost no halacha existent about war at the time Rilchensky is writing. And therefore, it's like, how do, you, how do you live by the same values if the values are not concretized in halacha? And why aren't they concretized in halacha? Um, but there is another nafkamina, which is when we, when we now ask Rav Lichtenstein, what are the values by which you are supposed to live in the context of war, and where are they derived from? So you have, you have two fundamental options. One is you derive them from the halachos about civilian life. And the other is that you derive them from the, hal- the halachos that exist about war. If you derive them from the halachos that exist about war, you're going to end up with uh, pretty extreme stuff. Because most halachos we have about war are pretty extreme. Now you could try and extend the rays of the, of the, um, of the, you know, the, the, the leaving the fourth door, the fourth side open for a siege, um, and and maybe extend your fator to a certain extent. But then you discover that all those are really, um, you know, all the restrictions are really milchamet rishut and milchamet mitzvah. You're going to run into a malik and shiva amim, and there's nothing you can do, right? And you're going to be in bad shape if you're looking for a, an ethical context. So the interesting thing is that, to my knowledge, the vast majority of contemporary poskim essentially ignore a malik and shiva amim and things like that when building their when building their conception of halachic ethics, and they drive they derive their values in the same as Rebbechelstein argues from the values that are applicable in civilian contexts. It doesn't mean that they derive their halacha. By, take, by transferring a civilian context, but derive their values from the halachos that apply in civilian contexts. Right? That's the assertion. I prove that, right? And I, you know, I go sort of uh, bonkers every time somebody tries to bring a malik into a contemporary, uh, contemporary setting because first it's just a halachic error, but also it has it has invidious consequences. Uh, so yeah. Other than the Lichtenstein quote, what's the reason why we shouldn't go that way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, but yet it is. It seems to be a. Um, it seems to be essentially, I think, uh, I wouldn't say consensus is a strong voice, but the, my, my impression is, you know, I've talked about Schechter and, Rav, and, Rav, and Rav Weiss, and even Rabbi Israeli, with one exception at the, at the, um, at the end of this, and Rabbi Rabinovich, and all that, right, they all, they all build the conception of war, even Milchemet Nitzvah, which is, built off, uh, which is built off the framework of civilian morality. Uh, yeah. Right, so that's where I go bonkers, always, because I think the last time I've prayed was, you know, it, it would be better to find analogies that don't have the whiff of genocide about them. Uh, people think they're quoting a because that's all they want, but really they're quoting a because it gives them a certain psychological satisfaction to imagine, uh, to imagine it. But, you know, the fair critique that people have made of me, which I think is correct, is that I need a counter-narrative, because people do need a way to relate to the enemy as genuinely evil. 
And so you need some, and I haven't you know, provided them with a language which lets them say this enemy is very, very evil. Um, but uh, the easy way, you know, Amalek, first of all, most Achronim think is a mitzvah only Mos HaMashiach and Shaul was over Rasha. And secondly, the Pasuk says that Amalek, the mitzvah of Amalek comes to place only when you have peace um, from all your surrounding enemies, which means Amalek, A, it doesn't apply when you're at war with everybody, and B, it can't be somebody who has a border. So um, right, so right, so that uh, right, so that right, so it's just a halachic mistake, and the halachic mistake which always carries the consequences of disregarding casualties, and is also very unwise politically because every you know because everyone on the other side hears it immediately and amplifies it. So I, I you know, it's it's a hang up of mine, which I've written about many times, uh, and I think I'm right. What did I do? I, you know, it happened in, in Tacoa this week also, where just you know people. I think I can see that I, I, you know, I have not, I have not, I didn't appreciate the, um, or I didn't accept the responsibilities of a darshan. People need a darshan, right? People need something they can say because this feels worse. Now, it's true that people felt all the, you know, the reason of salvation came up with this because people needed a way, people always need a way to express the feeling this is really evil. But you need a way to do that, which, you know, astonishingly enough, the German people are now pro-Israel. It's a good thing we didn't wipe out all the kids. Uh, and, you know, many people have already you know, taken apart the uh, the brisker vort about it. You, you, know, you can read my take about it, but you can, you know, you can, let's say, watch Rav Shelad at Malaya Dumim, you know, just begin his Q&A about war, by just saying, you know, I know people say that, but what? Come on. <laughs> you know, like, obviously, it's not Pshat and You can read my article, and I, I do it, you know, Barachel B'chaknana, but it's pretty clear. Okay. So what is the Salim Arakim? So I tend to ground it in the, in the, um, the post, the post uh, flood covenant, um, and here's how I want to frame it. You can argue with it, but I'm just, just say this how I'm looking at it for the purpose of the shir. There are three roles victim, perpetrator, and judge. means that it's, you have to remember that all three of those are human roles. Um, when we call the perpetrators animals, we are diminishing their responsibility and eliminating the spiritual dimensions of it as sin. And we shouldn't, right? So the, the right, and then you know, we can't hold them accountable. You can't hold animals accountable. You only hold Salme Elohim accountable. So the crime is terrible because the because the victim is a Salm Elohim. It's a crime because the perpetrator is a Salm Elohim. And because it's a crime, there's an obligation on a Salm Elohim to bring them to justice. And that's framed in terms of the laws of Rodef, right? The laws of Rodef, right? So the, the third party is right, the third party is the is the is the Dayan who judges the Salam Elohim who is attempting to kill another Salam Elohim. Right? Bob Maftarat extends that to even uh, cases which are somewhat anticipatory. Um, I gave you the Al Kachimoni, which extends that to uh, that the logic of a Balahargacha from private context to um, to military context. You can decide how compelling you think a Yal Kachimoni is. But the Miri quotes it in one place. Rav Aaron Soloveitchik liked it, so I, you know, so I certainly can't remove it from uh, from halacha. Um, and then you have the Gemara above Metzia, which seems to say that you, you know, Rabbi Kiva learns imach, means that you're just allowed to prefer your life to somebody else without any kind of moral failing of the other party. Right? Even though it's not a situation of rode. Um, so you could learn from all these things that basically um, halacha allows self-interest to override. Uh, right, you know, uh, to override the laws against killing. But then you have this astounding Gemara, in which the Gemara says that we learn that Ritzich is Yehurig Yavor, that Shvichus Damim, my preference is Yehurig Yavor, 
from a svara, and that that svara is fundamental in a sense that other svaras are not, because not only does it tell you what the halacha is in this case, there is a pasuk which, which creates a hekesh which is dependent on prior knowledge of this svara. Like, draws an analogy between adultery and murder, and we only know what the, adult, what the analogy teaches us once we know the svara about murder. So the svara, who says your blood is redder, is prior to halacha. It's prior to midrash halacha. You, only, you can only get midrash halacha right if you, if you, under, if you understand it already. Uh, now the astonishing thing is that we say this as a svara, which is supposed to be so obvious, about such a central issue, uh, right? And I think also if you look at the literary structure of the sugya, the structure of the sugya builds towards that moment, like a certain suspense. You know, we have pasuk, right? Oh, okay, well, pasuk, that's fine. Hekesh, okay, well, that's fine. And then it builds towards them. Everything just depends on the svara. Um, and um, the astonishing thing about the svara is it's beferish against Rabbi Akiva's drasha. It's pashtus against the whole category of rodeg. Now, after the fact, we can come up with casuistic distinctions to say, oh, the svara only applies here, and the, right, and the svara only applies in the context of Ritzicha, whereas Rabbi Kiva is talking about Losam Damriacha or whatever, or not even Losam Damriacha, but none of that is implicit. Right? The svara, in theory, applies to all those cases. Rabbi Akiva, right, um, and the, it's only that we end up saying that the svara is true, and yet we find other ways to do it. So my claim is that that means that even in the context of, right, if we're taking your Lichtenstein seriously, um, I think it means that you still have to, the default in halacha is there's a set of exceptions to that, right, which include Rodef and Babamach and Rabbi Akiva, but you still have to, but your default is still that there isn't anything for which you can kill somebody else, and therefore, as opposed to saying, right, if we're applying the same values in the context of war, as opposed to saying, well, the default is it's war so we can kill everybody. Now you have to explain to me why you can't kill that person. The default is you can't kill other people. Now you have to explain to me why, why, why this is different. Okay, and I think that will create a very different uh, set of halakhos of war. Okay, so with that, let, I think we now actually get to turn to Rabbi Israeli. Um, I think we do get to... Okay. Um, so let's look at Israeli. So the, the, the article was initially published in uh, 1954, I think, in a journal called Hatarav Hamadina. Uh, it comes with this introduction, which does not, I think, follow it to, into its republication in Anmud um, which in which he tells you that, look, you know, everybody, everybody is hypocritical and everybody holds Jews to responsibilities that they don't hold everybody, everybody else to. And then he says in the last paragraph, Right? We understand the, the quote-unquote justice that, you know, that, that, um, that, that characterizes the, the legal line taken by the, 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 by the, the states that, um, that condemn us. Right? But the fact that people accuse us of things unfairly does not absolve us of the responsibility to hold ourselves accountable to our own standards. Okay. The reality as Rabbi Israeli understood it, and that is not, and it is not my issue to evaluate whether his understanding was correct or not. That in 1953, right, before, right, there are no, no disputed territories. Um, 
a terrorist would regularly cross the border from Jordan into Israel, and most recently they had right they had killed a mother and her child in an attack, an attack on Israel. Uh, a group of Israeli soldiers under the command of a young non-general, uh, I think lieutenant at the time, Ariel Sharon, led a reprisal raid on a, on the village of Kibia, and Rabbi Israeli in Rabbi Israeli's facts, and I don't have any way of checking them. The terrorists regularly came from Kibia. They were supported by the they were supported by the townspeople of of Kibia, although it's not clear whether their the support of the townspeople of Kibia was necessary for their actions. Um, the reprisal raid uh, involved blowing up a bunch of, a bunch of houses, and those houses were not successfully evacuated before they were blown up, and so quite a number of women and children, in addition to in addition to men, were killed in the blowing up of the houses. And so this article sets out, to, sets out to, ex, um, to explore whether it is possible to justify the, rate, the, the reprisal rate on Kivia in light of halakha, even though it, it certainly killed non-combatants, including infants. And that's the question he sets out to explore. So what's interesting is that he doesn't start with war. Yes? Sorry, the reprisal rate was this a regular revenge attack? They weren't killing terrorists, or they were trying to kill terrorists and destroy the house killing terrorists? They were trying to deter future terrorist attacks. They were not trying to kill anyone specific. And it's not clear, right, that's probably that they intended to kill the women and children. Probably not. Probably they gave an order to evacuate, and it wasn't fully obeyed. Houses? Yeah. Like you do now, right? People, right? people punish right? one of the reactions of terrorists. They destroyed the houses of terrorists. They destroyed the houses of people who were suspected of, right, of support for terrorists. The terrorists themselves, probably, probably not. And there's no question it was in violation of international law because they crossed an international boundary. Right? They're, they're, that, that, that isn't in, in debate, right? Because there was no debate about you know, sovereignty then. Those territories were Jordan's. Okay, so... Um, so, the, so what I think is, uh, is the first really notable thing about Rabbi Israeli's article is he doesn't start by saying, well, this is war, and, let's, like, and, you, have to argue me, and you have to argue out of it, why, why, it's war, why can't I do it? He starts with the premise that the way to justify it is by treating it as an act of criminal justice, as opposed to an act of war. Okay, and he begins by saying, well, why don't we just say that because the village, the village people support them, and encourage them. So let's say that they are shluchim of the. Uh, let's say they are shlu- that, that the they are terror- that the terrorists are shluchim of the village, and maybe we'll hold that um, the when it comes when it comes to non Jews. Right. That's a pr- that's a that's approach. Um, that's that's approach that's approach number one, and in that way it doesn't matter whether the whether the people provide necessary material support to the terrorists, because right, you're going to make somebody a shliach who would do it themselves anyway, so long as you make them your shliach. Right, they motivate, right, that they would do it otherwise independently, but they could do it without you as independent. All that, matter, all that matters is that you intended to make them your, right, your shliach, and they didn't deny that. So that's argument number one, is let's say yesh shliach varavera for the purposes of murder with regard to non-Jews. A second responsibility a second possibility is, let's say, that there are terrorists in their midst, and terrorism is a violation of the mitzvah and there's a chiyav of dinim to bring terrorists to justice. These people, far from bringing terrorists to justice, are encouraging them. 
So we're going to do, obviously, Rick and I are going to do Shemin and Levi at Shechem according to the Rambam. All right, so they're, right, they're all responsible, including the women and children, um, for, right, for, the, right, for, their failure, for their failure to impose dinim on the terrorists. That's approach number two. Uh, approach number three is to say that the terrorists are Rodfim, and the people in the village are assistants to Rodfim. Uh, and assistants to Rodfim, an interesting one is they provide a certain kind of assistance, even if it's not necessary, perhaps, but perhaps cutting it off will, you know, will, will have some effect. And secondly, they're being enablers to Rodfim simply now by being human shields. And human shield, right? Human shields can be killed because, right? Particularly if they are aware of being human shields, because they are. If we said that you can't kill Rodfim because they're right, because and I mean, Rodfim people are going to kill again, right? So they're terrorists among us. Terrorists are going to kill again. We could, but we could kill the terrorists, except that would involve killing civilians. Well, if the civilian, that means the civilians are preventing us from killing Rodfim, so now they're Rodfim too. Maybe it depends on intent, maybe it doesn't. Because we'll have models for Rodaif that don't require, that don't require intent. Right, so those are his, those are his um, three, those are, those are his three uh, civilian ways to justify the killing, right, his hypothetical three ways to justify the killing of civilians, including infants, in the, con- right, in, the, in the context of reprisal rates. But he rejects them. Again, we're going to go through now right, how he rejects them because some of the ways are really quite surprising. So the first thing, he says, well, you could say en shleach uh, right, that might, right, that might be enough. And you could say en shleach noach, and that might be enough. But it turns out that there's a drusha in Breshis Rabbah, um, right, which says, right, if number of china, kulam, Right on, on our, right of the the thing we we focused the beginning. And there's a that seems to teach us that in the context of Ritzicha. So right, so our. Our theoretical arguments of you know about Yeshlof uh, Levarvera and Yeshlof Levinoach turn out to be inapplicable to uh, inapplicable to um, to Ritzicha for Bnei Noach. But then he says, you know what? If you look in the Rambam Hilchos Ritzach Shmiras Hanefesh, you'll see that he quotes Asocher Laharogit Chavero and Sheshalach Abadav Beharugu, and there again again he says Zeha Socher Acherim Laharogit Chavero. Um, but if you look at the Rambam in Hilchos Milachim, you'll discover that the Rambam, when the Rambam is describing Hilchos Bnei Noach, he never mentions Socher or Shliach. I seem to have forgotten to put those Makaris on. That's, oh, I did, right at the bottom, right? He doesn't, right? He talks, he talks about some of the cases that show up as being in the, he talks about Trefa and Kafsul of Ari and Rodev Shiach Lassil Bethel but he never talks about Socher or Shliach. So Israeli says that must mean the Rambam paskins against this drasha. Uh, and interestingly enough, right, then this is always a little question of how you learn until how you learn Sukkim for Benoach and you know when they're right, he, he uses these drushas to teach us that teach us that Jews are over Shvichus Damim if they hire assassins or, or send Shluchim, but he thinks that non Jews are not, since the Rambam doesn't quote it in the context of Hilchus Malachim. Okay. Let's grant him that what we think is Hilchot Ritzera refers to Jews, Hilchot Malachim refers to non-Jews. So he draws a comparison and he says, look, they're mentioned explicitly by Jews as being Darshan, right? As, uh, by Jews and not by non-Jews, so that's fine. 
Now, in that context, he notices you know, two other things. One, which everyone notices, is that Hilchos Ritzeach, Hishmeres HaNefesh, never mentions uh, a fetus. Doesn't tell us what the status of a fetus is. Um, okay, right, everyone notices that. Um, and second thing, which is a much bigger deal, is that the Hilchos Ritzeach, Hishmeres HaNefesh mentions suicide, and Hilchos Malachim does not mention suicide. And he's going to argue that just like non-Jews are not, in the end, we don't apply the drusha that teaches you that you're chayev for hiring assassins to non-Jews, he's going to end up holding that suicide is mutter for non-Jews. And that's his extreme counter of Zevin position. That, um, that actually, actually non-Jews own their bodies entirely. And Jews own their bodies almost entirely, but a Kodesh Baruch was a chilek in them. And so you know, Jews can only allow themselves to be killed in situations where God, where God agrees to give up his chilek too. Um, okay. All right, so that's his, but, the, right, but his argument at this stage is that, um, that it's incorrect to say that you can hold them liable as, um, as, as, um, as because the assassins are their agents because we hold Enshleach, Lidvaravera, Leritzicha, Vaibde Noach as well because the Rambam doesn't quote it. So this is a whole interesting question about um, how one paskins these sorts of questions. Like, you know, if you have a, let's, if you have a, a clear measure that the Raman doesn't paskin like that, so does that actually tell you that we don't paskin that way? Interesting question. Uh, my son-in-law is fond of saying that, you know, because the Raman was the only postic we have except for now, the Atid, on many of these issues, so we give the Rambam too much influence on Hilchus Dei Noach. Um, because we just don't have other postkin writing, and we should, you know, and we shouldn't treat it as if it's the world where every, you know, where Right, where everyone came in and the Rambam has this opinion, no one else has it, but you know, everyone, and everyone else could have expressed an opinion, but didn't. No one expressed their opinions on these issues. So maybe we overweight the Rambam, maybe we shouldn't be convinced just because the Rambam doesn't quote it. Or maybe not. Okay. I'm fine with the, uh, I'm fine with the outcome, I guess. Um, although it's just interesting to me that it makes an argument so technical. About, you know, about, like, Okay. Number two, which is the argument, which is the argument about Dinim. So he rejects that on the grounds that, um, who says that um, even, if, even according to the Rambam, but do they not have to risk their lives to impose the law of Dinu? Presumably, right, if the villagers of Kaviyah had opposed the terrorists, the terrorists would kill them. Right? As we know, they're right on the Hashir right? That's right. That's part of the challenge going on in Gaza right now, that you it's really difficult to tell whether anybody is assisting, is assisting voluntarily, involuntarily. And even if you think that 80% of the people are assisting voluntarily, but there's some people who are assisting involuntarily, and right, you can't kill people because of a rove of this sort. So he says, you know, I don't know. I, right, I, I, I cannot know whether the people are assisting voluntarily. I certainly can't know whether all the people are assisting voluntarily. And, um, and, no, and nobody thinks that the... Um, Nobody, right, no, nobody thinks that the um, that the chiyuv of dinim extends to the question of right, so far as going yehargal yavor for non-Jews. Um, so that's an interesting claim. Uh, where does he get that from? So the answer is he gets it from a maharal, uh, maharal which is often quoted to make the opposite point, but in this case, right, but the maharal along the way of making a point, which in a different shir, I can talk about how Rosh uses that maharal, but along the way to make along the way to make that point, maharal says the following in the Gurei. Right, 
Right? So the Maral then goes on to his own theory, which is not our context, our, our issue in this context, but the Maral says that he thinks the Ramam's answer is implausible, even if you hold that Dinim is a capital crime because it's not Yehurag Dal Right. Now, whether he says this about all Mrs. Benoach or only about Dinim, right, you, could, you could combine the positions and say this is only a din, it's, only, it's only a din and dinim. Uh, now, why would I want to say that? So I want to give you Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's. Um, and again, there's a, there's a different theory, which is not the course this year, um, to find a way to ban civilian casualties, which is the importation of Dalacha Vrodev Shiachol Lotzil Bechad Meivarav into Halacha. And so if you kill, right, so unnecessarily killing civilians is, is a violation of Rodev Shiachol Lotzil Bechad Meivarav. It doesn't show up in Israeli's article because Israeli is looking for the ways to justify killing. Right? You only bring in Rodev Shechol so Asila Chadmei if you want to find a way to not justify killing. Um, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky comments on that uh, on the on the um, on the Mizrahi, who was the one who argues in the context of Yaakov being Yerei Shema Yaharogas Acherim in the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach. All right, so the, so, the, so the Mizrahi says Yaakov's worried because maybe there's somebody who could be he could kill Becha. he could save he could save himself by just being by just uh, taking one of their Ivarim and instead he kills them. So that shows you that the that the Mizrahi thinks that this applies even to war. And this Rav Yaakov Kameski says the following. Uh, hang on, right? I in Mizrahi shekatav is elashon of imtomar gavra alimahaya. Maybe the people with Esav were brought against their will, and therefore Yaakov can't kill them because they're they're at war against him against against their will. They shouldn't have listened. Kamenetsky says that there is one mitzvah which, which an Anjou is, is chayed in Oser Nefesh for, which is Ritzicha, Shrikha Samim. Because the Svara applies just as well with the mitzvahs Beinoach as it does between as it does with the mitzvahs of Jews. Okay, and therefore, in order to make, right, in order to have this not contradict um, Rabbi Israeli's argument, I have to say that it's the mitzvah of dinim that you're not mechidim those nefesh for. But if they actually they were required to actually directly kill somebody, they would still have to say no. Yes, Daniel. If we're basing our whole military ethics on svara, we're saying that we have to use that svara. That's our frame of reference towards them. Then shouldn't we paskin that Yaakov went to against them at all? Like, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have that have to be our? Like, why should we be excited to have that be our framing towards them and not them towards us? <laughs> Oh, so that, yeah, I think the Maral says there's no, there's, that, there's, that on Dinim, there's no Yerav Yavor. Right, Yerav Kamenetsky writes, so now we have to ask whether their assistance is a violation of Shvichos Damim or just a, viola- right, just a violation of Dinim. If it's a violation, if it's a violation, right, the, the argument that Rabbi Israeli is talking about is the claim that you can kill them because they violate Dinim. Right, on that Maral stands. But if they were actually violating Shvichos Damim, right, then, right, then we'd have to pass on Yerav Kamenetsky. Now, you could say, that even though we hold Rechayev to be Moser Nefesh for Ritzicha, right, if you kill somebody under those circumstances, you still have a Pter Onus. Right? One of the interesting things about the Ramam, he doesn't think that apparently uh, if you take medicine, he thinks that you're Chayev if you take medicine, uh, that's Yerav Yavor, but he thinks that if you kill somebody, 
um, at someone else's request that you do have a Torah onus even though you did the wrong thing. Uh, but I want to point out another aspect of what Rekhamaneski did, because now, if we think it's a svara that only applies among Jews, Jews are, right, Jews are required to say, my so that's one thing. But when we say that it also applies among non-Jews, and it applies by non-Jews towards Jews. So I think like one of the, you know, one of the ways which you can really see where people are coming from, halacha, is whether it's obvious to them, as the svara, that my applies even among Jews and non-Jews, meaning that if a Jew has a choice, if somebody says to a Jew, go kill that non-Jew or I'll kill you, is it obvious to you that the Svara says, my or do you say, no, I have a good answer to the question, I'm Jewish and they're not. Uh, I think it's not a coincidence that Yaakov Kamenetsky is the one who introduces, who says the Svara binds, um, binds a non-Jews. Yaakov Kamenetsky is also the one who says, thank God for conversion, because if it weren't for conversion, we would be Nazis. Gizanim kemoha nazim is the phrase. Uh, to, imply, to imply that there's something inherently redder about Jewish blood, Ryakov Kamenetsky is evil. Um, and I think you know, that really is like one of, the, one of the things that one has to, you know, that, that are hard to live with, one has to live with in halacha, is that there are poskim for whom it is not obvious that this pharaoh applies equally between Jews and non Jews. But whenever you come across an occasion where that's so, you have to be very, very worried about the halacha that comes after it, and we should make every effort to pass in the other way. The analogy I bring is that in constitutional law, there's a concept called strict scrutiny. Right? Certain categories, like in, when, if you have outcomes that differ by race in constitutional law, you have to prove that there's a, compelling sta- a genuinely compelling state interest in making that law. We should do the same thing uh, when it comes to distinctions in Jews and non-Jews. There has to be a compelling religious interest in that outcome uh, because the bias has to be towards treating them all as human beings, but I shouldn't say that on my own, so I'm giving you a record of uh, making it the way which I think is... Uh, uh, which I think, which I think is is very very clear. Okay, but Rav Yisraeli rejects the second approach on the grounds that there's no Yeruvel Yavor on the right on the, the on the mitzvah of Dinim. Um, he presumably thinks it applies at least to the uh, to five of the other six mitzvot. I don't know what he would say. But I don't know what he what he would say about a non-Jew being chayiv b'moser nefesh um, uh, to avoid to avoid killing a Jew because I can tell you he doesn't agree with Yerachah Kamenetsky about that fundamental. About fund- that fundamental question. Even though one of the interesting things about the article, about his approach, which I, I show in my article, is that he also resists reaching any conclusions on the grounds of the failure of the Surah to apply between Jews and non-Jews. But he doesn't. But he doesn't think it applies. Okay. Um, approach number three is the right is enabling of Rodef, and here you have to get into the um, into the Rambam about abortion. So the Rambam in Hilchas Chovel uses the category Rodef to apply to luggage. And he says that if a ship is overweighted, um, so, you, right, um, so you're allowed to take someone else's luggage, presumably if you've already thrown your luggage overboard, you can't take someone else's luggage first, probably. Uh, you can take someone else's luggage and throw it overboard in order to save your life and the ship. Now you might think that's obvious, but some of you are probably aware that the, um, uh, the Arach Lanier in his, uh, I always forget what his chubas are called. I'm sorry. Um, something, whatever. Um, right, the Erech Lanier says that, um, based possibly on Rashi, that it really is Asr to be Matzil Atzvacha Bebamon Chavercha. Whether you really go, gives you the right to take someone else's money to save your life. Right? That's a whole separate thing about how seriously we should take that halacha. But the Ramam says that, right, that at least when luggage is classified as a road day, if you're allowed to throw it overboard. So that seems to establish the category of Rodef applying to non-sentient beings. 
And if Rodif can apply to non-sentient beings, so the Chor Rodif can apply to non-conscious beings and non-volitional beings, and therefore you should be able to kill, right, to kill beings Rodif, even though they have no kavana, because if you can, throw, you can throw luggage overboard, then why can't, you, right, why can't you throw a person who is sleeping overboard? And they have no, even though they have no awareness of what they're doing. Okay. Um, we could get that a simple way. So the Rambam famously says that you kill a, uh, that you kill a fetus in the womb as a rodef if its birth is, is attained to kill the mother. But the moment the, the, moment the head emerges, um, then you can no longer, uh, then you can no longer uh, kill it. Everyone's trying to figure out, hang on a sec, like, why, right? If the law is rodef, what is the difference between before and after? So one answer you could give is to say the difference is that killing a fetus is shvichut damim, and killing a, killing a child is ritzicha. And so what it teaches you is that the requirement of volition some kind of some kind of volition um, for right in order to, in order to kill a human uh, to, to kill a rodev only applies to something which it is resicha to kill. Or alternatively, the Mishnah in the Mishnah in Olos, which talks about abortion, says that yasarosho ain't nogin bo she ain't doch nefesh b'plein nefesh. Okay, so you have you have you have a criteria which is set up on the grounds of uh, on the grounds of homer ha'avera. And you, have a, and, you have a, and you have a condition which is set up on the grounds of nefesh. The straightforward nafkamina is that killing non-Jews is shvichut tamim, but not resicha. So if Rav Shisraeli had chosen to read the Rambam as based on Chomer Ha'avera, he could easily have said that killing non-Jews, the Jews can kill non-Jews to save their own life, even if the non-Jews have no intent, because non-Jews are like fetuses of halacha. Instead, he says, no, actually the boundary is nefesh. And non-Jews have a nefesh. And nefesh nefesh, right, means that you cannot kill a human being as a rodev unless they have volition. You can only kill something which is not quite a human being, namely a fetus, or really not a human being, namely a piece of love. Right? So that's the moment like, where he... On the one hand, he doesn't say that he doesn't he doesn't say that my supplies, and he's clear about that. On the other hand, when he's confronted by the nafkamina, he chooses the other approach. That right, that to me that that to me is really very interesting. Um, so at the end of the day, right, so he rejects the rodev approach as well, on the grounds that you can never kill an infant as a rodev, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, because endoch nefesh benefesh means that you can only kill. A nefesh rodef when the when the rodef has guilt when the when the rodef has guilt. Okay, so at this point, we are through all the um, we are through all the arguments uh, that all the arguments that apply in civilian context. And Israeli says if you want to justify the radon kiviyah, the only thing you can do is make it war. You cannot justify it in the context of civil of civilian law. Now, I like to think that he did it this way because he accepts Rav Lichtenstein's fundamental approach. But you could argue differently that there is a problem that he, that he understands that claiming that this is war is very difficult for a tactical reason. Um, right? You all know that the United States has not fought a war in a very long time. Um, right? Like the Korean War was not a war. Right? You all know that. The Vietnam War was not a war. Why? Because the Constitution says that only Congress can declare war. Okay, right, and so right, Korea was a police action. <laughs> I forget what Vietnam was, right? We all have the right, these little special things, <laughs> right? Special operations, right? All sorts of things like that. Now you'll tell me like, why am I bringing this in the context of halacha? 
because there, a milchemet reshut, according to the Rambam, is generally understood, requires a declaration by the Sanhedrin. You don't have a Sanhedrin. So there is a possibility that if you define this as a milch, that if you define this as war, it would end up being a milchemet reshut because it's not right. It's no milchemet reshut. Milchemet mitzvah does not. Milchemet reshut needs a declaration of Sanhedrin. And this not this is not right. And there was no there was no need right now to go into Kivya and have this right and have right and have this raid that you could choose to raid any time you wanted. There was no need to have the war now, and therefore you might argue that Milchemet, that the raid on Kivya was it was a Milchemet Rashut and there's no Sanhedrin. So how could you possibly have it? So that's why there's a dis- possible discomfort in going directly to war, which is not based on desire to use silly morality. Yes, really. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Okay. We have to define what defensive war is. Right. The, right. This was a, this was a war attempt, you know, attempt, attempt, you know, attempting to create deterrence. Right. It was, it was not, it was not, it was not a defense against a particular attack. Right. So that becomes an issue. Right. There are other ways around that. Right. There's the, you know, the claim that the Sanhedrin there is just wearing its, um, its representation of the sovereign people hat, and so in the in the absence of Sanhedrin, the capacity to declare war reverts to the people. Um, right? There are other there are, there are other fancier ways, but it could be that the reason the Rabbi Israeli doesn't want to, because like, like for example, Rav Shechter, um, in order to solve the same problem, uh, and he's not the only one, but I just happened to teach his article recently. Rav Shechter claims that the war in 1948 has never has, has never stopped, and therefore. All military actions against enemies taken by the state of Israel are continuations of the state of war enacted in 1948. It's kind of like the global war on terror in uh, in Halacha. Now, now he wrote this article in the 80s, um, so it's interesting to know whether it's affected by the the Abraham Accords. Then certainly some of the people who have made right who have who have who have, who have made war in 48 are no longer Egypt, um, right? So not clear. You know, is it still the same state of war with many of the original belligerents? have actually accepted peace. Uh, conversely, it could be that um, if you think the fundamental war is now is with the Palestinians, so it may have unfortunate consequences if you think that war requires two nations, so then you have to recognize Palestinian nationality, which you may not want in order to have a war. So all sorts of reasons why you might not want to use a, right, to use a, use a context of war in Israel, you might not have. Except that they have the Abraham Accords, and we have, we have sort of things. Could do that. We also, yeah. So as long as one, you know, that somebody asked me earlier today, right? If you know, was the U.S. still at war with Japan because there's the one guy left, right, left in left, left, left in the cave, right? So there's still one Japanese person at war. So we're so all at war. Still, but to, to, to the other extreme end, if you, if there were to have a war against Australia, let's say, yeah, and then we had one individual says, I claim an in peace. If you represent Australia now, we're no longer. Right, so you have to figure out who the national representative is, and it's a problem because there isn't an Arab nation. There were attempt, attempts to create an Arab nation, but Nasser failed. Right, so right, so right, and this—if we want to take halacha seriously as a legal mechanism, right, it's going to take and it's going to treat war as a real category. So then there are consequences to that. And sometimes you want it to be war, and it won't be. And sometimes we'll pretend, right? Maybe halacha can pretend the way the U.S. pretends. Right, then we can, you know, we can write it, you know, the haramas, and so this is one of the haramas, right, that we pretend it's not a war, but it is. But there are always consequences to it being a war or not. 
So I'm just putting out, again, I'm just saying there are reasons why Rabbi Israeli might not have wanted to do it. It might be that he's just thinking the way I am and we should start, you know, the, we're applying civilian values, so let's just go through civilian things. Or it could be that he understands that the application of war is a, right, is a bothersome thing when you're talking about a single raid, not even officially authorized by the state. Right? The state immediately, of course, denied any responsibility for the action because there's no question that it was illegal under international law. Right? The question was whether Sharon would be disciplined. Right? He was. Now, was that wink and a smile, right? Wink and a smile discipline or not? That's you know, that's also a question. This is part of why uh, why Sharon becomes a lightning rod uh, all the way through because every right, because everyone knows that he's the one right who led the who led the raid, who led the raid on uh, on, on Kibia. and there's a whole discussion about whether he intended or didn't intend to kill civilians um, as part of that. But unquestionably, he cl- he crossed the international boundary um, in a way which would have been which would have been deeply deeply dangerous had it been authorized by the state. Because it's an act of war for your soldiers to cross into another sovereign country. Act of war, we said that again. Right, right, but can it be an act of war if private parties, uh, if private parties, you know, do that, do that on their own? That's right. That's a that's a challenging question. But there again, right. So calling it war, right, has has has, there are all sorts of reasons you might not want to declare it war. But but Israeli decides that if you don't call it war, you can't get there. Now we have to try to get there in the context of war. Okay, so now we're on page uh, on page five, um, right? So he says that there's a mission in Sota. This is the mission that many of you were trying to uh, were trying to quote, where he says um, that right, the Gemara makes a distinction according to the Tanakama. There's this, right, the distinction is made in terms of the draft. Right, so in the narrow question of whether you can draft uh, grooms and right, grooms and brides, um, according to Tanakama, the 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 answer is you can in a milchemet mitzvah, not in milchemet reshut, and according to Behuda, you can in a milchemet chovah, but not in a milchemet mitzvah. Okay, now what are these categories, mitzvah and chovah, and are they be, and it's the term specifically is the term mitzvah being used the same way by the Tanakama and Rabbi Huda? Right, or right, so they have two, or two different pairs. We should mitzvah, mitzvah, chovah, but we don't know whether the word mitzvah means the same in both contexts. So Rashi said, but let's try. Rashi said, "Milchem mitzvah, kigon kibush eretz yisrael bimei Hoshua. So Pashtus Rashi thinks that there's only well, and he says kigon. Right, he just doesn't give any other examples. So maybe Rashi thinks that all words of kibush eretz yisrael are milchem mitzvah, and nothing else is. Could be. Don't know. Right? Rashi has a narrow definition. Yerushalmi quotes a machlokas. According to Rabbi Yochanan, um, right, everyone agrees that there are only two categories, and everyone agrees where the line between the two categories is, and it's just mashmoas benayin. It's just a semantic difference. Rav Kista says, no, there's a machlokas benayin. Rabbanan Amri milchemes mitzvah zul milchemes David milchemes chova zul milchemes Yehoshua. So the the um, the who's the, the, the calls the Rabbanan hasn't used the word chova, so it's really hard to figure out what the correct Yerushalmi on Yerushalmi is supposed to be. But the first position distinguishes between the wars of David and the wars of Yehoshua. And the second position, uh, Rabbi Huda says, a Mulchemet Rashut is if we attack them, and a Mulchemet Chovah is if they attack us. Okay, so according to the Yerushalmi, there's a substantive difference. According to the first position, um, right, all the wars all the worst spoken about are the divided between David and Yehoshua, and David presumably is the model of Rashut in some way. And according to the second position, we're not talking about historical wars at all. We're talking about whether it's a war of self-defense, 
or a war of aggression, and the question is where a war of preemption fits in in, the, right, in, in those categories. Okay, that's the Yerushalmi. The Babli also records the Machlokas Amaraim about the, about the Machlokas in the Mishnah. Uh, Rabbi, Yochanan said, Rabbi Yochanan again takes the position that it's purely a semantic dispute. Uh, but Rava says, Milchemet Yehoshua Lichbosh, Divrea Kol Chova. Milchemet Beit David Lirvacha, Divrea Kol Rashut. Ki Plige Limeute Ovde Kochavim Dvolete Alaihu. Mar Kari La Mitzvah, Umar Kari Rashut. Okay, so the Machlokas is that the Tanakama, which the Gemara refers to as the Rabbanan, takes the position that wars of preemption, right, wars right, that's right, it's a war to diminish their numbers so they won't attack us, uh, is a Rashut according to the Rabbanan and a Chova according to the attorney Rabbi Huda. And the Ramam says that we Paskin like the Rabbanan and therefore a war of preemption is a Mulchemet Rashut. Right, that causes all sorts of issues. That causes all sorts of really serious issues in the run up to the Lebanon War. On the other hand, uh, the Gemara says very peculiarly that the nafkamina between a Muhammad Rashut and Muhammad Mitzvah is Osik Mitzvah Patrim and a Mitzvah. Presumably, if it's Rashut, then Osik Mitzvah does not apply. And if it's a Mitzvah, Osik Mitzvah does apply. And that's really weird because the Mishnah already gave you the nafkamina, which is the draft. And we have another nafkamina, which is the Sanhedrin. So, why does the Gemara tell us that the nafkamina between Muhammad Rashut and Muhammad Chova? Is Osik Mitzvah Patrim Mitzvah, and we have two perfectly good Nafkaminas anyway. So this causes almost every Achron who thinks about the issue to decide that we actually have to use the term Rishus in two different ways. Uh, what we thought, right, there's, there's a real Milchemes Rishus, which does not involve a Mitzvah, and then there's a Milchemes Rishus which fulfills a Mitzvah, but is not yet categorized as a Milchemes Mitzvah. Okay, and the Lachoth will be, right, and so, and, and in the Mulchemes Rishus, which fulfills a mitzvah, maybe we'll have some Nachkeminas, but not others. Now, the Rav, I think, argues that there actually is no such thing as the category of a Mulchamah that is a mitzvah. The Rav thinks that all Mulchamahs, at most, can fulfill a mitzvah. And the Chazanish has a cool Nachkemina in which he says that you can something that a war which begins as a Mulchemes Rishus, but you lose, and now you're on defense. So now it's a Mulchemes Mitzvah, so the self-defense, but you still can't draft. Right, it doesn't have it doesn't have the, all the dinim of milchemes mitzvah. Right, there are all sorts of ways in which people come up with intermediate categories uh, in order to resolve in order to resolve this tension. But how do we paskin about the preemptive thing? Right, so now we get to the Rambam. The Rambam says Ezra Yisrael miyatzar shabalehem is right. The Rambam is included in the category of milchemes mitzvah. But the question is, does he think it's included in the category of milchemes mitzvah all the way, or only for the purposes of a sake of mitzvah patrimony mitzvah? And does Ezra Yisrael Miyatsar include preemptive wars and not just purely defensive wars? Not just reactive wars? Is it really the same thing as the Gemara is talking about? Because it's Tarshish Baalehem. The Gemara is talking about basically um, actual cleansing of it. Right? Well, so let's say the Bavli, the ba- the Bavli talks about, right, the Bavli does not, uh, the Bavli says that a Rashut is a war that we, is a war of preemption. So the Ramam could, if the Ramam put the Rashalmi and the Bavli together, Right, so the Rishalmi says the difference is whether they attack us or we attack them. The Babli doesn't deal with who attacks, but what the purpose is. And he put that together and he says, right, so the Ramam says, right, the Ramam says the only Milchemes, the only, only Milchemes Mitzvah is a war, right, is a war of, of self-defense, but whether he allows for preemptive self-defense is not clear. The Miri is somewhat starker. Right? The Miri says um, that um, 
המלחמת שבעמין ועמלק בדברי הכוכבה, מלחמת אויבים שאינו מצד יראתם, אלא כדי להרכיב במלך גבולו ולפרסם את שמו לדברי הכל רשות, לא נחלקו, אלא שנלחמים אויביהם מחמד שיראים מהם שיבואו עליהם, או שנודע להם שמכינים עצמם מלכך. Right? So here it says that the מחלוקת applies even if we know that they are preparing for war, and we attack preemptively. That's still the מחלוקת, and that means we paskin like the tzad that it's rishus. So if you take the Meiri this way, then you end up, uh, you end up with a very narrow conception of, uh, you end up with a very narrow conception of Melchamet um, Mitzvah. And the Raid on Kibiyah clearly does not fall into that category. And Rabbi Israeli wants to, Rabbi Israeli says, look, according to Meiri, I, I certainly can't make it a Melchamet Mitzvah, and I can't prove to you that the Meiri isn't correct in the Rambam. And therefore, I cannot argue that the Raid on Kibiyah counts as a as in Ezra Yisrael Miyad Tsar in the Rambam and Melchem Mitzvah, and therefore it has to fall into the categories of Melchem Rishus. Now he asks the moment, right, that he has to me is like the glory moment of the article, and he says, why is a Melchem Rishut Mutter? What kind of idea is this? That you're allowed to kill people for things when it's not necessary. So now there's an Etziv famous which says, Kach no Sad HaOlam, other people write, but Rav Yisraeli says, I just don't buy it. There can't be a heter for war. So how can it be? He says, look, but I also hold that non-Jews can commit suicide. And if you're allowed to commit suicide, then you can also engage in mutual suicide pacts, where we say, we agree to the rules, and I, and I risk my life. And I give you rishus that if the way we play the game, it turns out, it, it turns out that, uh, that I die, so that's just like my giving you permission to kill me. Yes, sir. Good question. Right? Well, how this applies to Jews is not, but, he's, but he, wants, he wants to know right now. He's talking about wars between. He's about wars in general, and that, and including wars of Melchem and Rishus launched by Jews. He's thinks that in, in, the, in Melchem and Rishus launched by Jews, there's a, the Jews claim itself a risk. Yes, yeah, so that itself is a question, and that's why you need the authority of Sanhedrin. Right. Yeah, but the way, the way, but the way he's going he's gonna to build out, he's going to say war is permitted for, non, for non-Jews because mutual suicide pacts are, right, are acceptable if you play by the rules. Yeah. And, and, the, and the permission of Sanhedrin it, right, functions as God giving up his chilek in Jews. So if the Sanhedrin declares a Melchemet Rishus, mm-hmm. right, then, right, then, right, then you end up, right, some, version of that, some version of that argument. Um, okay, so now he says, but that... Only apply right. That means that in Melchamet Rishus you can never kill anybody except according to the agreed upon rules. So that's the first. This is how he incorporates international law. Right, that right, that is it's only mutter to kill people according to agreed upon agreed upon rules. And as soon as you break the rules, it's murder. Because war is not war is only a, an ethic free zone if there are no agreements. And secondly, he says, how can you impose that consent on infants? So it's never mutter to kill infants in Melchamerushus because you can't, right? Because you because you can't do that. And if the article had ended at this point, I would be a very very happy camper. Because right? now what he said is that um, that there's no civilian way to justify there's no way under civilian law to justify the uh, militarily unnecessary killing of civilian right, of, of civilian combatants. Or even if militarily necessary. And maybe even military necessity. Yeah, any war ever. Maybe, maybe unless it's part of the rules. 
Civilians, civilians agree. It's part of the rules. Civilians agree. People who are under the age of like the two sons like no detail. Yeah, that's interesting. Other. That's an interesting question, right? That's uh, right. It's not clear, right? How even Germans during the Holocaust, right? Yeah. So now the question is, what sort of risks you can take? But you can never target civilians at all. In his uh, right. Like something is going to kill somebody. Yeah. Right. Right. No, there, are, there are ways we could build that, but right, we end up with a standard that's at least as rigorous as international law. Um, but the purpose of the article was to justify the attack on Kibia. So we haven't gotten right. So the article does not end there, sadly. Uh, then, right, so having failed utterly and having defined for the purpose of this article, Mohammed Mitzvah so narrowly that you can't get the right on Kibia into it, he then. Uh, comes up with an amazing chiddush, which if I were only intellectual, I'd be very, like, I'd be saying, I'd applaud, which is, hang on a sec. There is this thing called Milchemet Midyan. And Milchemet Midyan is a revenge attack intended to, uh, right, intended as some form of physical or spiritual self-defense. And he now creates a whole new category of Milchemet Mitzvah that shows up nowhere else in Jewish tradition. The Milchem and Nekama. And in Milchem he says, we learn from Midian that there is, right, that, that you're allowed, you're, allowed, you're right, because he doesn't bring in a Malik, he doesn't bring in, right, he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't bring in Shiva Amen because, right, because that's not the kind of Milchem we're talking about, but he is willing to create a new war, a new kind of war called, um, called Milchem Mitzvah. Called Milchem Nekama. Now he says, and in Milchem Nekama, so it's right. So now he has to play the same kind of unfortunate game that people play when they quit a mullah nowadays. He says, "Well, Milchemet Midian, we kill the children because that was part of the Nakama. How could we do that? That's obviously us, sir. Because in Avod, right? Because in Avodah Zarah, it is possible that we say that the people were that if we kill people, it's only because they're already chayiv misa b'dinei shemayim, and therefore." Right, Right? So we could say that, the, that the ch- we can justify the killing of the children of Chavit Midian because God told us that they're Chayav Misa Bideshamayim. And therefore, right, in, a, in a war like Chavit Midian, we could get to the same place. But then he says, hang on a sec. But we're not talking about Vodazara here. So there isn't really any way to justify killing children. But maybe you can say if we didn't target them, it just comes out that way. So maybe we could target them because it was, they were Chayav Misa Bideshamayim. But here, we don't know they're Chayav Misa Bideshamayim, but we're still going to use the paradigm of Chavit Midian to say that if they happen to die accidentally, maybe that was Misa B'deh for their, for their right for their parents' sins. Because sometimes children are suffering. So this is like the same thing. We create a, we cre- we create a category of war. We say, well, we're going to make it a paradigm, but we're going to try and prevent the, or try and prevent the Nafkaminas of it, but we can't really prevent the Nafkaminas of it. That's how he ends the article. Right? He, said, he says, I still can't justify targeting children, but I think I can justify the incidental deaths of children by saying that this is a war of Nakama, and in a war of Nakama, the, ac- the accidental deaths could be, right, can be excused because they died because they were Chayyab Mesib Deh Shemayim. Yeah. Yes. Now, seven years later, he wrote another article in which he men- makes no mention whatsoever of this idea. Um, so you know, I think and part of the question is what is the genre of this article, right? The genre of this article might be the, you know what's the best we can do and not you know post facto, as opposed to an actual defense of it, or maybe he meant it at the time. I don't know. I thought that it was clearly um, not true for uh, two reasons. 
Uh, one is as a Gemara and Bavakama, these are the last two sources. Uh, the Gemara and Bavakama, which says that Moshe wanted to make a Kalvachomer and attack. God says, Altatsuras Moav. So the Gemara says, What? Why does God have to tell him Altatsuras Moav? Why would you think he could start a war? And the answer is, Moshe made a Kalvachomer from Melchemes Midian. And God told him, No, you can't make a Kalvachomer from Melchemes Midian <laughs> because you don't know what my motives are. And I have written Hamoviyava to save from Moab. So, like, you know, I think the Gemara saying explicitly, if you want to make Milchemes Midian a paradigm, that's a bad idea. Moshe Rabbeinu tried to do that. Don't do that. All right, that's what. More narrowly, though, only because of the exact reasons yeah. that Rudy et cetera, et cetera. Well, how do we know that there's isn't Rudy coming from, right? I, I'm just like, I, yeah, I, I understand you can do it, but, you know, but no. I, I'm comfortable saying that's a pretty good argument against. Um, secondly, the. Um, we learned the uh, we learned the wars of uh, we learned the rules of the um, siege from Midian in some miraculous way, right? Not everybody does, but most most people learn the war leave, leaving the fourth leaving the fourth war, wall open from Milchamid Midian, even though there's no evidence that that was true in Milchamid Midian. But somehow in Medrash it became the way that just like in Milchamid Midian, where it says you know like Shechita, right? We learned Shechita from Zavachta, so it has to be like with a with a knife in the front of the neck and the two and things like that. So God says, right, attack Midian like this, not like that. Uh, okay, now on that, the, Ram, the Ramban says, now everybody is trying right, is exercised to say how is it that we can and every, everybody agrees that the requirement to leave the fourth wall open doesn't apply to mitzvah that you, when you besiege them you have to leave the fourth side open okay that obviously like when people started bringing up in the context of this war i said nobody thinks that when the goal of a war is to kill people that you have to leave a way for them to escape. That's ridiculous. Right? The only reason, the only time, you only have to leave a side for them to escape if your goal is to conquer the territory or to expel the people. But if your goal is to kill them, that's ridiculous. And every, in the halacha, this doesn't apply to Milchemet Mitzvah, it only applies to Milchemet Rishut. And, right, and most Rishon are learning from Midian. Now you ask me, hang on a sec, Rabbi Clapper, you just said, so Milchemet Rishut is the kind of war about which we say, Moshe. How does Milchad Rishud is both? How can you say Milchad Rishud is opposed to Milchad Mitzvah about a war which says Kasher Tziva Hashem? All right, Kasher Tziva Hashem Moshe. So we could cheat and say Kasher Tziva Hashem Moshe means they engaged in the Milchad Rishud against Midian in the way in the way that God commanded them, namely they left the fourth side open. Right now we no longer have to deal with the with the question of Milchad Midian being attacked, but that only gets rid of that pasuk. It doesn't get rid of Sarod Midianim Vikitemotam. So the word Midian is about as precisely commanded a war as exists in uh, as exists in Jewish history. So this is why everyone has to come with the category of the commanded war that is nonetheless a Mohammed Rashut. Right? Meaning that it fulfills a mitzvah, but it doesn't have the technical requirements of Mohammed Rashut. And this is one of those ways. We can talk about all the ways we played out, but the one thing you can't do, the whole point of Israel is trying to make this a technical Mohammed mitzvah. And have the technical laws of Milchemet Mitzvah applied to Milchemet Midian, you can't do that. Now, you can tell me that the Ramban is not L'cholodeo, but I think the, I, don't, I have not found a Rishon who disagrees with Ramban on this. I found Achronim 
who suggested, although every time somebody says it's Milchana Mitzvah, you have to qualify. Maybe they just mean the other kind of Milchana Mitzvah, not this kind. So, end of the day, um, I think, you know, there are many things I love about this article. The Lumbus is incredible. The construction of human autonomy is amazing. The introduction of, right, the introduction of rules of war is an amazing, right, is, is, an, is an amazing thing. Many other aspects of right, the reading of the Rambam, right, um, I wish it didn't have the last part, um, but he doesn't have the last part in his next article either, and I think there are two good ways that I can disprove it, so I think that I'm okay leaving this article saying that, in fact, um, on the basis of, you know, if we look at what we think emerges um, vi viable from Israeli's analysis, even he says that there's no war whatsoever in which targeting civilians is permitted, and certainly not targeting, right, tar targeting children, and he only justifies, you know, he only justifies the um, the um, the killing of non-child civilians in this weird kind of war, which doesn't really exist. Um, so I think that you know that uh, we end up with, with something pretty much resembling international law, uh, with our own criteria. And if the other year we can talk about the uh, we can talk about what those um, criteria might be and whether halacha has something to contribute, and not right. Whether we, whether we just playing defense so people don't abuse halacha. To say right to try and criticize those of us who right who insist on holding the word ethical standards even as we support its goals and its implementation, but just saying like it, uh, that I support its implementation doesn't mean that from a halachic perspective I wish you could go further. The, the, the subtopic of Amalek, no, exactly as from Jews, our job is to make sure that the army maintains right maintains ethical standards. I think that's a that's a good step one. And the question is, do we have anything to contribute? Uh, so I'll just mention one thing for fun. Um, one of the, the Rabbi Bleich has a, uh, a famous article in which he thinks, which seems to reach a different conclusion than me, in which he says that um, in a Melchemet Rishus you can't kill more than one sixth of the world's, of the world's population. Of the Gemara and Shavuos. So up to 1.34 billion is fine. 1.33 billion is fine. Right, these are the questions you had to ask when nuclear war was a real possibility, and of course the president might ask you a Shiloh. So don't, right, don't launch the war unless you're going to make sure that the casualties can be limited to 1.33 billion. It's about 8 billion people now in the world. Um, on that Gemara, so shot in that Gemara is argued like, I, I never disagree with Rebbe on the reading, except here, like I really do, because I think it's just wrong. The Gemara is actually not talking about killing other people. The Gemara is talking about what casualties you can, in, you can, um, in, you can risk on your side in, in launching a Mohammed Rashid, and that's, I think, clear in Rashi and Tosfos. But the Chazanish read it Rebbe Leich's way, so I can't do much for you there. Um, but I think it's clear if you're Rashi and Tosfos, which is, I don't see any other way to read it. But the Sam Sofer cheerfully says, no, actually you can't kill one-sixth of the world's population. You can, right? Because um, he says, if that's the case, why are we mad at Nebuchadnezzar for wiping out Judea? After all, Nebuchadnezzar ruled the whole world, and certainly Jews are less than one-sixth of, of, of even of Nebuchadnezzar's population. So what, so what did Nebuchadnezzar do wrong? Why are we so angry at him? It was a Mechemes Roshus, and he killed us, very small, very small percentage of his people. So the Chsam Sofer invents this really cool thing. He says, no, it's usher to kill more than one-sixth of any identifiable group. In other words, the Chsam Sofer invents in the context of war a prohibition against genocide. And he defines it. Genocide is defined, right? Genocide is defined as the killing of more than one-sixth of the population of any identifiable national group. So there's a way which we have a useful thing to contribute to the conversation. Um, right, so right, there are, there are there are other ways which we might uh, which we might be able to do it. All right, thank you for listening.
you're not already a Maidvar Torah list, I encourage you strongly to sign up. Um, if you wish to be signed up, you can add your names to the bottom of the list. Um, and if you're interested in coming to uh, kind of learn, um, apply early and often. <laughs> uh, and a bonus, I hope for applying is that you get to have a very, very long interview learning with me, um, which is sometimes fun. And uh, if we both enjoy learning, then you should probably come and you can talk to Daniel or Zach or the non-present Zach uh, to find more about the, find more about the program. Thank you. All right, thank you. Pleasure learning with you again, Ari. Pleasure to see you in a non-simple context, either. But I'll have to meet, meet the simplers again. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure to meet you in person. It's interesting because I feel like I feel like in Parsha new about Amali. Like I feel like in Parsha new, I've heard. Uh, I feel like people say that Amali is similar to trying to uh, attack nations that are you know, just kind of like friends of nations. Like in halacha, you can't say Amalek is, is similar to all these things. Yep. But also, Barshan, you can say that you don't have to kill babies in Amalek because it, you know, it never necessarily says that. And you can explain the way it does. That's right. I think it's better to suggest ban Amalek. It's really, it's just, it's not, it's not, every time a Jew says Amalek, right, it is blasted all over the internet. On every anti-Jewish site, Jews, right? Jews, the same way. Every time, in, every time a Muslim right quotes the the quotes the hadith about you know there's a Jew behind the the, the tree, kill him. Right. Every time they do that, we say, ah, oh, look, they want to kill us all. You know, they're just quoting the Quran. Right? Every time we say Amalek, right? They say, look, we want to kill all of them. And it's just right. It just it damages us, a and b. It's wrong halacha. So wait, why do we want a drasha that damages us? Is wrong halacha and carries implications that are dangerous. Catharsis. Catharsis. Right. So we need another one. I think it's more than like the way the way I view it is it's not catharsis, but just it gives us the imperative to like help the world. Like if there are dangerous people out in the world, so we're supposed to. Right. So let's find another way to say that that doesn't imply that we should kill their babies. Right. But it's different than catharsis. Like a, I understand, right? Well, it's, you know, you okay. Well, you can, you can see you're right. It's not a psychological. You know, the catharsis is a little they, mean. May, most people might view like. Would ask catharsis. I'm saying, from my perspective, that's that's been the drug I'm like, not Yes, I, I was at Tikkun last Wednesday night, and you could watch the people who were yelling at me. You know, you know, start off by, of course, we don't do that. We don't even have the Yitzhahara for that. Why do people keep talking about Ben Gvir supporting the people who burned the Palestinian children to death in, in the woods? Those are obviously exceptions. We don't have the Yitzhahara. I wish we could, but you know, just why does these sweet little old ladies, right? When you just, you know, just got a little, bit, you know, got a little bit angry, then all of a sudden. It's there underneath it, right? That we do have the Yitzhara. And it's legitimate to have the Yitzhara because they did horrible, horrible things. As did the Nazis, who are now our friends. Maybe I'll even bring myself to buy a, to buy a Mercedes, yeah. So I haven't brought, managed yet. You know, I grew, I grew up like, to the driving Mercedes. I can't drive, black Mercedes I can't do yet. But um, I'll try to buy a convertible as I look, because right? I've still missed my convertible from some years ago. And Mercedes are cool. You know, you have to get them, like 20 years old. And so I managed to drive a light blue one. So, you know, I, I still have that, right? You know, it, I don't know that I can buy, I can't buy a black Mercedes, I don't know that I can buy a German car. Um, but I'd like to, because I don't see any reason. It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, like, you know, when I, buy a, when I buy a Serbian car, Serbians committed 
genocide against a completely unsuspecting population only 25 years ago. It's like what a terrifying thing. I had a Bosnian survivor come to, when I was teaching again, come, uh, you know, come uh, on Yom Show, I think, and just talk about, like, you know, they, they, like the Jews are at least, are, you know, like, are, are sort of expecting it over your shoulder. Like, we never think you really had peace. But, they, like, they really were living in peace for, for 60 years. And then one day, their neighbors woke up and slaughtered them. They're really horrible people. Do I think we should wipe out every, every, right, every, every child in Bosnia? No. Do I think we should wipe out all the, chil- all the children of, the, of the, the, whichever ethnic group it was in Rwanda that killed the other? And they really, like, went out, you know, and killed them all, including their children. Sorry to run out now, yeah. but I have, to, I have to run out. It was great. All right. You. Thank you again. Thank you again, Daniel. Thank you so much. For and uh, hopefully we'll learn again together soon. Yes. Uh, anyway, that's, you know, so I just think it's, I'm so sorry to Zach, right? I think that it, we do have the Yitzhahara. Pretend we don't have the Yitzhahara is just, you know, it's just wrong. And the Yitzhahara, you know, like I said, personally, you can tell me I'm wrong, the Yitzhahara is growing in our community. And because we're human beings and they keep doing horrible things to us, but then it's a vicious cycle. The Bravanel says this about Amalek, right? That if you want to fulfill the mitzvah of Mechias Amalek, you have to remember everything they did to us and forget everything we did to them. Because if you start thinking, right, because we, we, right, we, we've committed genocide against Amalek several times. Right? So, so Ravanel says, you want to fulfill the mitzvah, you have to realize you cannot actually have a sense of history. You have to just stick back to the original grievance. Okay, that's what it would take to fulfill the mitzvah of Amalek. That's not a good thing to do in the, in the, in the, right, in the, in the rest of life. Um, so I, you know, I, I agree, and I, I you know, came home really, I walked out of Tekoa, um, saying to myself, okay, I understand where I failed. I don't have, I don't have an alternative language they can use. As I don't have an alternative language they can use, right, I understand why they're yelling at me. So I need to come up with it. <laughs> But I need to come up with it. Um, that's my task now. Okay, it's good to have a task. Is the alternative language though for the broader message, that, like the uh, the message I'm going for of I, I, we should try to yeah? Put more I haven't found it yet. Thank you. Send regards, please, and I'll look forward to learning together again. Because like, like one time, like I, like I one time gave a shear and said about the shades of hero, and so I said like, like the, I gave a picture of the Statue of Liberty and like just walking. It was really silly. And I said because America is supposed to bring our values out to the world, and like Amalek does that for us. Like when we remember Amalek, we should remember that it's not just about us, but we're supposed to remember that we should protect others who are being, you know. Yeah, like, right. So if you frame it that way, I'm fine, right? Thanks, so I understand that Amalek has bad implication otherwise, but. Is there no way? Like, I think that's a very important message. I agree. Is there yeah. a way we can do that? So I, have, I, I, I agree that right, I realize, you know, that, and several of my friends have been on my, on my other trip have been very clear with me, like, you know, that I, I need to be more constructive. Um, so let's say when I was debating Ellie Michelle in the Bergen Jewish Link um, this year, so he started the Malik Shabbat, so I just responded, you know, halakhically, that's nonsense. So he said, okay, halakhically, it's nonsense. I think I heard him say, is he living in France? Uh, it could be living in France. I think I heard him speak, and he was really fiery. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So, <laughs> so then he said, "Okay, but what? But we should do Sarah, Sarah Hagar Yishmael." And you, Rabbi Clapper, Rabbi Kornblower, who wrote with me, you're Avram Jews, full of Chesed, and we love you. But we should all be Sarah Jews and kick Yishmael out. Right now, that was like you know clear narrative, which is apparently why he goes over really well with Christians. Very biblical narrative, don't it? Right. 
And so, I, like I said, okay, that's a really powerful narrative. So I responded, and this year the state of Israel turned 75. And in the 75th year of Yitzchak's life, he, right, Yishmael does tshuva and Yitzchak and Yishmael bury Avraham together. So plainly, the message of the whole narrative is that this is the year to expect Yishmael to tshuva. And we just, you know, okay, wait, we want you know, that I thought was an effective rhetorical response. Like, you know, I can say this, we're all, we're all going to be Yitzchak Jews, not Sarah, right? Not Sarah Jews, not Avraham Jews. Okay. Um, but yeah, I need, I need to find a language. Like we forget, you know, that people use Amalek about Jews a lot. Right? Lots of Jews use Amalek about Jews. Right? Um, right? You know, recently, notoriously. Um, he said that the, um, the Jewish Bolsheviks were, were, uh, were Amalek. Um, and people said it about all, all sorts of rhetoric. It is very dangerous, always. Uh, when you, whenever you apply it to it, when you, as you're doing it, right, as a positive spur, in Achinami, right? But when, as soon as you apply it to a, right, to, an, to a real enemy, but we need a symbol of evil. Right? We need a symbol of evil, and we don't have a good symbol of evil other than the Malek. At least I have not thought of, like, if I want to say, well, that's really, really bad, um, you know, I don't have a way of, uh, you know, famously, right, the, in one of his drushes, was trying to come up with a way to come up with, like, ultimate selfishness, and he ended up with basket hanging. Basking are players who players who stay on the offensive side of the court in full court basketball and wait for you to throw them the ball but don't come back on defense, right? So like I need right, I need the equivalent of basket hanging for a look, you know, of, of something that expresses like a total repugnance, uh, right, of it. I don't have, and I you know that's that's my task. I need to I need to stop just saying don't say Amalek. I need to say don't say Amalek. Say this, you know, and it can't be Midian because. Of, Right, because Midian is going to work with Israeli either, and Midian, and Midian is not the right context, right? You know, that's like part of the challenge is that uh, generally, you know, that uh, it's part of the challenge for you know for from people, especially with Haredi tendencies, that generally, you know, the people fighting us are monotheists, and they care about Sneas. right? So they're not Midian, All right? And we don't have such a good model. Or people who are really right, and and I'm all like is lo yirei elokim, right? Right, so right, well, you know the notion for people, right? And we so we have might have models, right? It might be stone, but still, you know, we don't know we don't know what to do with stone, right? Are we Avram or are we, right? Or are we God, right? So that's a whole. Uh, but coming up with a culture, right? It might be pelagish vegiva, right? Where you know where we we do massacre them and then we regret it. Right, those are all ways we can. But I don't I don't have the. I don't have the drusha that I can give, which is, I agree, people need a drusha to feel like this is really, really evil. This is not just a war between two people, two sides who have a, a dispute among, among themselves about territory, which we're right and they're wrong. Right? They, want to feel, they want to feel, and legitimately so, that the people who did that are really, 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 really evil. And correctly, they, do, they, they should want to say without saying they're animals. That just that just takes away the responsibility. But yeah, I need a way to say that. Animalic meaning that just sounds like rose. Then you think of Malik. Once you say they're around Malik, then I guess 